Welcome back to the People Behind the Tech podcast, which is brought to you by the Leaders Performance Institute and SBJ Tech. I'm John Porch, the editor at the LPI, and, as ever, I'm joined by Joe Lemire, the senior writer at SBJ Tech. Joe, how's it going today? Good. Lovely uh, autumnal day here. Can't wait. Autumnal is acceptable. And nor can I wait, because today our very special guest is Jess Sandler a technical consultant and forensic engineer in sports biomechanics and human factors at RIMKIS, which is a worldwide leader in technical consulting and forensic engineering. Jess, a former varsity athlete, also has an adjunct research appointment at the University of Michigan in the School of Kinesiology. There's much more to Jess's resume besides, but one more thing before I finally introduce our guest. She is the program manager for the NBA and the Players Association Wearables Validation Programme. Jess, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's fun to be here. Then let's let the fun begin. Joe, kick us off. I start all of our guests with the same question. What technology and wearables have you adopted in your own life? What have you prioritized to help you through your own professional and personal life? I'm probably the worst for being someone who manages a wearables validation program. I probably use the least wearables. But I I use an Aura Ring that I've been using since they started using Aura in the bubble. So use that to track sleep, track readiness. And then I have a Garmin watch that I use mainly just for getting out for runs and bikes. And that's, that is about it. That seems to be plenty. And how have you seen the last few years in, in your, in your data, you know, parenting, you know, the changes in the, in life, any, any trends that stand out? Oh, it's abysmal when it comes to parenting. (laughs) um, I pretty much, I started wearing the Aura Ring when I was pregnant with my first child and then I just took it off because it was way too depressing. Then my finger got too fat for it anyway. But it was just too depressing to see how poor I was sleeping. And I think Aura was thought I was dying at that point. Um, and then I didn't bother to put it back on when I was I had a newborn because that was also really depressing. But yeah, slowly, what I've liked the most is starting to look at HRV a little bit and not really having any context for the numbers per se, but using that. I am an anxious and high stress person to begin with. And it's a good check for me when that that number starts getting really low, kind of a wake up call, like maybe I should deal with my stress in life. Maybe something needs to change. (laughs) Um, And so use it for that. And and no surprise, the last couple of years have been stressful. So (laughs) I've seen that trend trend down and around. But um, and then, yeah, I think having a child just kind of see it, uh, my, my running my running miles have decreased over time in my, my running. So it's a little bit more just a phase of life, but I've enjoyed using them just more to get to know my body a little bit. I think that's a nice way to use sport technology, but my, my competitive sports career is over. So um, I don't have too much demand on them now. Yeah, fair enough. I'm in a similar position in life, so I can certainly uh, relate to that. Before we get into a little bit more of your competitive career and your journey, the readers may not have heard of Brimkiss before, so let's give us everyone a little bit more background about you know where you're working and the type of projects uh, that occupy you. So Rimkis is a technical consulting and forensic engineering firm. It's based in the United States, but it has offices all across North America as well as in the UK and the Pacific region as well. So it is international. We have about 1,500 consultants doing work pretty much in every engineering discipline or every technical discipline. And I specifically run our sports science practice. And so the focus of our practice is to work with companies 
who have sport technologies or anything in related. So any health human performance technology. And we work with them from the start. It could just be they have a concept and they just want to understand the science behind it a little bit better and sort of what is the technical things they need to consider all the way till they have a finished product. They believe it does something. They have they have a good sense of what their marketing claims are, or what they think it is doing, uh, but they need someone to validate those claims or they need to do third-party testing and, and publications. And so we help them kind of throughout that process of how to kind of do the science behind their technology. And then on the flip side, we work with sports organizations in different leagues who, again, are trying to do better science, better research processes behind the technology that they're working on. So we kind of work across that whole gamut of just supporting that. And then we have teams in human factors, so more sort of ergonomics and how people interact with technologies. We have groups that just specialize in usability. We have groups that uh, we do have biomechanists and biomechanical engineers, material science. So we have all the different teams that we do then pull in to kind of support our clients depending on, on what kind of technical challenges they have. Any broad strokes, trends that you've seen about with as companies come to come to you and to Rimpkis, any areas of real growth and real potential that you've seen? What's encouraging to me is there's a lot of small startups and smaller companies that are saying, are seeing value in doing scientific research and doing validation and not just kind of putting their product out there. So that's been an encouraging signal to me is that they're coming along and, and saying like, we want, it's important to us to get publications out there. Like we want publications for the strength and conditioning community. We want people to see that we've done good work behind it. So it's less been a trend in specific technologies or specific developments, but more kind of this interest in wanting to do more validation work. In terms of technologies in general, we're seeing kind of runs the gamut. We can't really talk about our specific clients because we're, we're usually under confidentiality with them, but certainly there's a lot of interest in AI and computer vision. I mean, that I think is just a really huge area in an area of growth and sort of understanding what that computer vision, especially if we think about like player pose or things like that, what that actually then tells us and how close it kind of relates to something meaningful about the human. So I'm seeing a lot of interest there and still trying to figure out how to get our hands around the best ways to look at that data. And then just seeing a lot of different wearable technologies, measuring things on humans or providing performance benefits and just trying to figure out, you know, I, I think there's just no shortage of, of there's a lot of interest in muscle right now and just no shortage in trying to figure out different ways to stimulate the muscle, to challenge the muscles, see how that can create different performance benefits. So that's an interesting area of growth there. You mentioned the, how important it is to get that research out there. And certainly you've done a lot of that in your career and you were in academia for a while. How did you even set down that path in the first place? You kind of alluded to the, the end of your competitive sports career. And if I'm not mistaken, you played soccer in college. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's correct. Um, yeah. So yeah. Where'd you go from there into, into sports biomechanics? Yeah. So I played soccer my whole life, um, ended up playing division three college soccer at kind of a, a small school in St. Louis. And I was always really interested in the human body. Um, that just kind of always fascinated me. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And kind of when I looked down that path and physical therapy, things like that, the clinical side just less appealed to me. And I was more interested in the problem solving aspect. And, and I really enjoyed math and science and kind of that just kept resonating with me. And then I got injured my sophomore year of college and it took me down hard. And so I went from being a starter since my freshman year to last man on the bench, which was pretty painful and like finished out the last two years 
really uh, riding the bench, not really you know, working really hard to rehab back and, and get back into it, but never really getting the chance to get back on the field. And so I was, and I saw around me a lot of my teammates who suffered a lot of injuries. Of course, there were a lot of ACL injuries. Mine fortunately was not an ACL injury. Mine was a back injury, but just had a lot of interest in why injuries were happening. And if something about how the human body moved, what could, you know, what, what was there to tell us? And that was really when ACL injury research was kind of booming. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had a biomedical engineering degree, a bachelor's, and my options pretty much were like, were go to med school or uh, do medical device sales. So, and I come from a, a business family, no academics in the family. And, and someone told me that um, I could go to grad school and if I did a PhD, they would pay for it. And I thought that sounded like a good deal. Um, so, so that was what I did. Uh, that was kind of almost as much forethought as I gave it. But uh, luckily, had some really good research mentors and ended up at the University of Michigan um, and got a little bit of research experience before that. Enjoyed it. Found out I really liked working with kind of like working with humans. Um, I'd started in doing uh, chicken embryo testing, which I will strongly not recommend doing if you like talking to other people or ever eating scrambled eggs again. Um, and that quickly made me realize that I liked uh, just working with people. So I got to work in an orthopedics lab, working with people with knee injuries, with rotator cuff injuries, and, and realized there were some interesting questions about just how the human body moves, how it affects injury and rehab. And so that sort of ended up going and doing my PhD at Michigan just to kind of pursue that research question and just develop more really more skills and, and set myself up for some career, whatever, whatever that would be. But fortunately realized I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed research and the research process a lot and answering technical questions. And so that's kind of how I got my start. And how did you go from that into helping out with the NBA wearables program? That's definitely like my, my life kind of dropping through a pinball machine and just ending up somewhere nice. But uh, that was very fortunate. So I stayed after I finished my PhD, I, I didn't really want a postdoc. I didn't have interest in uh, becoming tenure track faculty. I'd, I'd always known that I really wanted to get back to the business world. I, I come from a family of entrepreneurs and, and luckily there was an opportunity to stay at Michigan and work as a research engineer. And so I was managing a lot of our, we had a big research contract with Adidas, who was also the sports sponsor, the athletic sponsor at the time. And so I was really lucky to manage that. So I kind of did everything from start to finish on those projects. And what was nice is they're very different than the traditional research grants, three years that we were working on, six-month timelines, three months, a year tops, really focus on deliverables to the client. Um, we also had some other client-focused projects that were coming in. So we had a lot of industry work coming into the lab, and then we were working a lot with the Michigan athletes. So we got to work with Michigan basketball, Michigan football, Michigan field hockey. And we were doing a lot of testing with them, testing product, and, and that gave me just some great hands-on experience. So eventually took over the lab and long story short, then left for reasons to go into just kind of starting to consult. But fortunately I had my relationship with Michigan when they got asked to put together a proposal to be participants in the, the wearables validation program. I think that was back in 2017, 2018. And because I had experience working with industry and a good relationship still with the school of kinesiology, they asked if I would help them put together the proposal. So I said, sure. And put my name in as a consultant for, I think, 20 hours at some nominal rate and kind of nothing, but had came out to help them with the pitch to the MBA when they came to visit the university. And, and fortunately, just kind of hit it off with, with folks there. And Michigan ended up being one of the institutions that 
got awarded the the wearables validation program. So it's um, them and a German institution that kind of coordinate. And because of the complexity of having two different research institutions, along with the MBA and the Players Association and, and international things, um, they recognized the need to have someone sort of manage those pieces and, and asked if I would come in and, and serve as sort of manager, sit within the University of Michigan, um, but manage kind of the different pieces that, that happen with the wearables program. Fascinating. And I know there's only so much you can say, but just at a high level, what is sort of the, the mission of that program and, and how you go about it? It's a really cool program. It's very unique. It's, it's one of a kind. Um, and they put a lot of work into making it happen and then a lot of work sense to kind of keep it, keep it going. So I really commend them on that. The way it operates, it comes out of the collective bargaining agreement between the, the MBA and the Players Association, in which there is this committee that regulates the use of wearables currently in practice. Um, there's no wearables in games allowed. And what that committee decided on is that there would be a validation process. So any wearable that would be approved to be used um, with players. So a player can kind of use any wearable they want, but if a team wants to ask a player to wear a wearable and be able to see that data, it has to be on the approved device list. And to get on the approved device list, it goes through this pretty rigorous validation procedure that was designed by the MBA and the PA jointly. And, and the way that works is that it can be any device. So a wearable is defined as any device that's worn on the player that collects some sort of essentially biometric data, biometric movement. So it could be sleep, it could be accelerations, it could be load, heart rate, and anything that's some kind of physiological or biomechanical signal has to be, um, has to go through this program. And the program then is run through both the University of Michigan and Fraunhofer Institute in Germany. And each group has different specialties that they do depending on covering different parts of the devices. And the mandate is to look at the accuracy. It's very, very rigorous. We have to look at the accuracy of every single metric that device is providing. So we don't just um, approve a device, we approve each metric that is is reported and put in export data or on dashboards. So we go very deep with the companies and we're fortunate that the companies are willing to work very closely with us and share a lot about their devices. And so we we design kind of using gold standard methods, try to use basketball players as much as we can, um, but test each metric that's in the device, look at its accuracy, look at its repeatability. And we have thresholds we set in advance that they have to pass. Um, and then we also have a group that looks just at the safety of the device. So if the if the device is worn as a player is, as it's intended to be worn, does it pose a safety risk greater than normal to to a player? So we have a, a physician that looks at that as well as a biomechanist that looks at that. So kind of has to pass all those checks, and it usually takes from start to finish about a year to go through. So it's a very rigorous program. But once it goes through that, then the device can be placed. You know, if it if it passes sufficiently, then it can be placed on the approved device list. Yeah, that's great. It certainly gives a world of confidence to all the, the players and teams and agents and everybody who's curious about what the device is. It was scary at the start. It was kind of this white space of, hey, we want this to happen. Can you make it happen? And I think we all just kind of went into 2018 like, ooh, this is a big ask. Like researchers, like us, academic type folks, like we don't really like to set thresholds. There's no thresholds that exist for pass-fail. It's not just like a known thing. You know, we had this, we spent so much time looking at literature, talking to basketball practitioners, um, studying devices, and thought, oh my gosh, this is. And then trying to really balance. Okay, we want this to be rigorous. We want the players to have confidence in these devices. We know they're generally hesitant to wear them, and there is pushback. We we want to to honor that and make sure this is high quality technology. 
But we also recognize this is technology that's meant to be used. This isn't meant to be used in a lab. It's still a commercial consumer technology. It's got to be used on a basketball court in real world situations. So kind of we continue to sort of try to find that balance. And it was a lot of discussions, a lot of hours, a lot of time to really try to make sure we balance those two kind of competing interests. But what has been really heartening for me and my understanding is that there seems to be more confidence in wearables and devices coming from the players, knowing that we certainly hear from the Players Association, who's been really supportive and, and great. Joe Rogowski was on before on this podcast, you know, and he's someone I worked really closely with and uh, on this process. And that, as a result, I think we're seeing more belief in technologies because there just was a really big backlash of very fair, a lot of technologies that came in that didn't live up to what they claimed. And understandably, then there was a lot of distrust of that. So now we're seeing more trust in the technologies that do come through because it is such a rigorous process. So it's it's hard for the vendors. It's a lot of work. It's not cheap for you know for anyone. Um, the MBA and the PA put a lot of resources behind it to make it happen. But it's encouraging now that we see a lot more faith in these technologies. Jess, I wanted to ask you about some of the walls that exist between the worlds of academia and application when it comes to the use of tech in elite sports. I'm, of course, asking you to answer that question with both your hats on, both as a practitioner and as someone with an academic background as well. Most people in academia and myself, including coming from a researcher, like I said, the, the clinical world, the, the applied setting was not one that I found myself in. And so a lot of times starting out in, in the academic setting, we're in labs, we don't have a great sense of the real world application. It's really, and it's part of it's just hard to access that. It can't just call up a team and say, hey, can I come hang out? Can you tell me all about what you do every day? Like that just doesn't really work. And, and so it's really hard to understand, you know, taking these technologies or taking this research and then actually bringing it to life and what it's like in the real world. And I think, you know, I was fortunate when we got to work with athletics because then we quickly figured it out. We, we had 10 minutes with athletes. We could talk to the strength conditioning coaches. We could understand just what they were looking for and get a better sense of just what their day-to-day -day was. But that's really hard to bridge because we don't often have practice. And, and now more and more, we're seeing more practitioners going into academia um, or, or kind of crossing that. But I think that's one big wall is just two different types of experience. And on the flip side, we had, you know, and what we had to work with a lot is we had practitioners on the teams who were like, well, can you just do this? And it's like, well, actually, like that sounds great, but that's not really achievable. Like, I understand you want to, you want to look at this, this, and this. We don't have a way to really measure that objectively. So spending a lot of time sort of massaging and helping them understand that this process, what sounds really simple on paper to do is actually really complex. And there's a lot of different factors that go into it. And so I think that's one, that's kind of one wall is just the experience side and, and, and the training side. And, and it's understandable and just the pressures. And I think the, the other, another big one is just the incentive structure. Within academia, the incentive is publications. It's getting grants and it's basically doing research that leads to another grant and then doing that research that leads to another grant. It's not necessarily about closing loops or providing a practical solution. That's not really rewarded. And in fact, like a lot of institutions don't even, I mean, one of the reasons I, I left Michigan is I was really frustrated. We wanted to do a lot of industry-focused research. We wanted to work 
with companies. We didn't care about the grants. We wanted to work with them on their products. And we were basically told that we didn't count as researchers then. And it made it really, it was a hard environment that we weren't doing real science. And so there's this challenge within academia to embrace kind of working on the practical side and incentivizing that. We also really struggled just with the university's accounting systems not being set up to handle these types of contracts. So there's a lot of barriers within academia that make it hard to then work with teams, to work with different companies and manufacturers. And so it further limits that ability to then really engage on more practical and applied work. And then I think a lot of times in the teams are like, well, we don't, <laughs> we don't really know. We want, we want to do a project with you, but you have made it really hard to do. Or, you know, it's, it, and the other thing is kind of figuring out kind of the, the funding and things like that. And it can be expensive to work, to do research is expensive. And so finding the, the, the funding to do that or ways to kind of do consulting agreements, it's just a challenge. Does that kind of answer? It does, but it leads me to ask you as well, what does it look like when it works well? How have the chips fallen in those kind of scenarios? I mean, I'd like to think, I, you know, I think what we've done with the wearables program is, and we're still trying to you know, continually make that better, but where it has, I think, worked well is that we, we have a really close relationship with the NBA, with the Players Association, and, and some of it is maybe fortunately that I was just given a role that, that that is my job. I don't have to worry about actually doing the testing, but I get to kind of bridge that gap. So I think when it works well, is you have someone that can translate between the both. And so I get to spend a lot of time with the researchers. Like this morning, I mentioned I had a 7 a.m. call that went for an hour and a half. That's us. It's me sitting with Germany and, and we are going through results line by line. I'm asking questions. I can understand the research process. We're sorting out all the nitty gritty. Then I know that I can then take that and then translate that and then have a discussion with, with the MBA and the PA about kind of what that means and at a higher level, you know, kind of inform them. And so I think that is, that is one way it, it can work well, I think is really just having that translation. It also takes, it takes a level of trust on both sides, a level of compromise. And so what we see is on the academic side, um, the researchers work faster than they're more comfortable with. They, they work on tighter timelines. They commit to deliverables. So they think less about grants and publications and about what are tangible deliverables that a, a business needs, whether that's a report, an outcome, and that those have to have deadlines because industry has deadlines. There are time pressures, and, and so those have to happen. And so that can be uncomfortable. And we also take a step back sometimes on the research side and, and try to think about what's practical. And rather than the most perfect, most rigorous, most beautiful and elegant solution, but what gets us to our practical answers? And then the flip side, we have sponsors and, and teams and manufacturers who are also willing to be patient and understand that it can't move as fast as they necessarily think it should move and that we can't just move fast, break things and, and keep going, that it, it works at a different pace and that there is some level of rigor and quality. And so they give some trust to the researchers and say, okay, I, you know, I trust you that you are doing your best and give you some leeway and some respect to kind of do that process and work hand in hand and ask thoughtful questions and, and understand where that and kind of be willing to nudge and push on the practical, but also be, be patient as those, as that process happens. So I think when we see both groups kind of come together and, and, and try to make some compromises, then we see some really successful partnerships. And then it, what I think happens too, is the more, and this is certainly anywhere, I, what my experience, when we can have repeat partnerships, you know, we've been working with the MBA and the PA for since 20, uh, 2018. 
So there's a chance to build, when there's a, a willingness to build rapport, now it becomes much more efficient. They can just call me, we can have a chat, I can call Fraunhofer, we can have a chat, I can have Michigan, you know, we can really work more informally and, and get things done pretty effectively. Um, and so the willingness to build rapport and just recognize it takes a little bit of time to do that, then there's some really productive results. How do you work then? day-to-day, I guess, to identify potential partnerships and collaborations between teams and, let's say, service providers? What sort of questions will you look to ask? Usually, you know, what comes across my desk, you know, if if a a team or a a sports organization kind of comes my way and and has has questions or wants to do work, I mean, my, or say is, you know, a lot lot of times I guess, hey, what do you think about, like, this technology? Or, like, should we do something with this tech? And I usually more my process then is to sort of walk through and say, why? Why are you interested in this tech? What, is there a problem that you're trying to solve right now? Like, is there, is there an issue? Let's talk about what your challenges are, what your goals are, and sort of help them more walk through that process. And then if it, and then if there's a clear, if they're comfortable defining a clear need, you know, a lot of times they say, you know, that's a great question. I need to go back I need to think about that. It's like, great. Okay. Yeah. You know, let me know. Happy to help. Like, let's think about why you want to do this or why you want to do this research or what's, what's the benefit there. And if they say, no, like this is, this is why we want to do it. We see this need. Great. Okay. You know, then it becomes a more nuts and bolts of figuring out, okay, how do you want to do this? What's your, what's your budget to do this? How do you want to operate? Do you want to work with an academic institution? Do you want to work with Rimkiss? Do you want to, how do, how do you want to approach this challenge? Do you want to just have a chat and do it all in-house? Do you need process? And so then kind of helping them think through that there's a lot of different options then to achieving that goal. And it can be as simple as them doing quick tests in-house all the way to sponsoring some really rigorous research. And usually there's kind of something in between that works. So then walking through those steps to figure out what's the best testing. And again, it takes a lot of conversations and just getting to know their needs and what they're, what they're actually looking for and trying to achieve with it. And then we kind of just keep iterating until we find the right process for them. What are some of the common issues that face product designers and tech companies when approaching teams and leagues with a product? Are they are they nervous? Are they confident? I guess it must vary in each individual case, but I'm just curious to hear how that looks from your perspective. So we hear this a lot. I mean, I'll give a shameless plug. Uh, we, we put together a, a group of us as sport technology quality assessment framework. And, and part of this was to, to help with with this issue because what we hear a lot from companies we hear a couple things one teams don't want to be used as a beta so there's always this there's this real challenge that for companies to improve their product or really test their product they have to use it with athletes and teams to get access to athletes and teams then they have usually the teams want to see that it's already been used with athletes and other teams and so there's this sort of this this vicious circle so that's just a really hard one i have some ideas of how how you do that and you can potentially start with lower level teams or different places that are more ready and willing to accept technology i think we're seeing some university partnerships where they're being more open to hey let's you know we want to help you out and we can you can work with our athletes but that's always a challenge is sort of the chicken and egg question there of like having that data and that's that's a big one the other one we hear a lot is the company has done what they think is a good quality showing. You know, they've maybe worked with such and such team, they've shown this kind of accuracy or they've checked some boxes. But when they go to the team, the team is looking for something different in the technology. They have questions about data privacy or they have questions about, um, they care much more about the usability and the user experience and maybe it's not there yet. And so I think we've heard a lot from from companies like, can you just give us a paint by numbers? Like we'll happily do what you want us to do. 
But when we talk to one team, they want this. So we go back, we do that. And then we go to another team, but they want this. So then we have to go back and do that. And so having something more universal, like, well, what are you, you know, or they go to an investor then and the investor wants something different. They get frustrated, kind of like they're chasing their tails. Always, there's always a new ask of something from them before a team will take that on. So I think that's, those are some of the big, the big challenges that we see. You brought up the quality assessment framework, and I know that's a product of the the Sports Tech Research Network. And Joe Rogowski, when he was on, sort of briefly mentioned that, but I know that's something that you've been highly involved with. Give us a, a little more of the the vision of that, and, and maybe what the adoption has been of this framework. If you start to see it make a difference in the industry, so yeah, so the framework was put together by a group of us, kind of across the North America, Europe, Australia, all folks that kind of work in, in consulting and, and research and supporting different sport technologies. And, and it came out of this, what we saw as a, a, a challenge, which was that, you know, a couple of things, what I talked about with, with different manufacturers, each feeling like they just needed some direction about what was important and that it was really hard to know what they should work on with their technologies. And they were getting a lot of mixed signals. And then on the flip side, working with teams, you know, certainly me, you know, sitting on the wearables validation program, seeing this firsthand and, and seeing a lot of different teams are getting inundated with technology requests. And, and again, you know, we, we go back to like, they, they want to see data and it's understandable too, because they're getting so many requests across their desk every day. They don't have time to deal with this. They don't have time to waste their time on it. And so them needing some better rubric and just a, assistance with that decision-making process of when to look further at a tech and why not? And so the framework basically has five pillars that we kind of did a lot of research on different standards. There's really no standard in sport technology that that exists. And I think some people still don't realize that, that there's no governing body of the world or even in each country that's stamping a sport technology. Basically, for the most part, manufacturers can claim whatever they want. And there's not many checks to that, except say if they enter a, a validation program like the MBAs or FIFAs where there's some things that are getting looked at. And so this has five pillars and, and then under that different features that are just really meant to kind of be the smallest unique set of things that in discussions with experts, and we, we had, I think, over 50 experts across the country, across the world, excuse me, um, from all different areas, um, then look at this framework and basically come to consensus on it. So this isn't just us making something up. We, we really worked hard and revised it till we got consensus on the framework saying these are important things with the technology and none of these can be excluded. Um, they're all kind of unique properties to include. And so then that's meant there's not a pass fail, it's, but it's meant to then guide the user to at least do sort of a decision making process and look at each of these pillars look at the features in them. So for example, under quality, there's things like accuracy and repeatability and, and make a decision what is important to them, to their need, to their application, and then sort of put together their own process of how they want to look at these pieces. Um, and, and But it kind of gives a, a, a universal language for talking about it now. So I, you know, I can talk about the wearables, the NBA wearables program and say it really looks at the quality pillar and then it looks at an element of the ethics and safety pillar. And those are where it focuses. And that's a choice. That's the choice to focus on that. And that's a specific reason. Whereas another organization might say, hey, we want to focus on all the pillars, or we want to just focus on a couple features in each that we think are the most important. And we're going to do those as a gating process. And then if, if a technology passes those, when we review it, then we'll look, we'll look deeper. So in terms of how it's being applied, it's getting adoption um, in a few different groups. We've got some case studies going right now, um, the Australian Institute of Sport 
has been working with it, I believe. Um, we've got some other research out of Australia starting to apply it to different processes of how you can then take this process and take this framework and then just start adapting it to whatever your own needs are. So we're getting some really good feedback, still working on you know, getting it in more people's hands, supporting others that are trying it. Um, some folks working with the U.S. Army have been using it in their processes, waiting to get some feedback from them on, on how that's going. But we're, we're hearing a lot of interest in it. We're also hearing interest outside of sports. So like occupational health and ergonomics saying, you know, it's really the same problems. There's a lot of technologies that are claiming a lot of things. We don't know how to look at them and there's not really a regulating body to tell us how to do that. So that's encouraging to us that there, it really kind of goes beyond sport, but just sort of broadly these technologies that don't have a clear set of regulations on them. If we had a podcast after show, I'd want to know about all those ridiculous baseless claims that you've heard from technology <laughs> devices. <laughs> we could go for a while. <laughs> but more, one of the questions that we do typically ask uh, our guests is how they keep up with the research. And, and you, more than any other guest we've had, are actually doing so much research or, or certainly have in the past. And I, I went through your, your literature a little bit and everything from the sensor location for a baseball pitcher to the stride frequency of ultra marathoners, head impacts in flag football, which for those uh, non-American listeners is a non-contact version of the sport. Uh, I saw your name attached to the scientific advisory board for Zenith helmets. You've certainly covered a wide gamut. What area do you think has the most growth opportunity or which, which of those do you think you, there's, there's more to uh, unpack and more to uncover? This is probably an unsatisfying answer. I think all of them. I mean, I, 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 that's the one thing with research. The more, the more one delves into it, the more we realize how little we know. I think that's that's. Uh, I, I got a PhD thinking I'd become an expert in something, and I'm just quickly become an expert in in nothing, um, and in just knowing <laughs> how little I know. So I think all of these areas have a lot more opportunity to push and develop. Um, I'm certainly kind of more of a, a jack of all trades. I think an expert of none. You'll see kind of that variation. I, I work with a lot of close collaborators. I mean, the theme is always understanding how human movement or how technology is affecting some outcome of interest. And, and that that looks different for different things. And, and some of these are very you know, specific client needs that we've delved into, like with Zenith Helmets and doing doing a lot of work down in flag football to answer questions. And it, it's kind of endless, I would say, yeah, it, where, where one could go, because there's a lot we just, the human body, I think specifically, the human body is really hard. If I've learned anything, it's really really frustrating. It's really hard. Humans are great at messing things up. And and I mean that in the best way, but like we're these incredible, adaptable, uh, resilient creatures. And so, you know, I've done a lot of footwear research and, and the most frustrating thing is everyone adapts differently to footwear. And so just the same, the same shoe, you think, oh, it's like, it's more cushioned. Everyone's going to say it's more comfortable and they're going to run this way. And we're going to see forces drop and not not the case. And everyone adapts differently and does something else and, and compensates in a different way. And some people like it and some people don't. And so there's a ton of work still to be done. And I don't know if it's ever solvable. I think maybe understanding more if we could ever classify kind of people and responders in different ways to different products and start to identify the types of people that will respond positively and will interact positively with them and others that it's a neutral or negative. I mean, super shoes are even one of those where we see some people are really high responders to super shoes. Some aren't. Now we know it also depends on the speed they run with, the how they run. There, there's a lot of things and it's really hard to suss out all the, the pieces. And so I think we continually live in this world of um, we can make the best product ever, 
But then when we actually use it with humans, it gets really messy. And so figuring out how to deal with that messiness and there's people doing more advanced techniques. We're seeing more push, you know, people throwing AI around, people talking about, you know, different other techniques and machine learning and things like that. How much they're actually doing of that, I, I never know what's just being said for because it sounds good or what's actually being done. But I think there's, a, of course, there'll be opportunity there to continue to see if we can deal with the human messiness better. And that I think will go across kind of any product or, or any technology. Great. Over to you, John. Thank you very much, Joe. Just one final topic from me, Jess, and that is the question of ACL injuries in soccer. You mentioned that you were a soccer player as well. You were obviously a biomechanist. And it's a common belief that one of the fundamental reasons why female soccer players suffer a higher occurrence of ACL injuries is because of their bodies. It's factors internal to female biology, I guess. To what extent do you agree with that? And what are some of the other factors that might be worthy of consideration? I'll I'll definitely caveat this with that. I have been away from the ACL field kind of for a while now. So I I have not stayed super up to date on all the latest research. At the same time, I've tracked most recently, there's, I think, been a lot in the news, a lot with the Women's World Cup and how many players were out. Just saw an article yesterday talking about um, that there's going to be a wave of injuries predicted for Australian women's football. And I was curious about that. That seems surprising because I, 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 there's a talk of an uptick, but I feel like we've always had this, this uptick that I, I don't, I don't know what's changed. I think it's, we've always had this higher rate of women's injuries. Certainly there seems to be something about how female biomechanics to some extent and how those, how those movement patterns develop. There's really interesting research just on the ligaments themselves. And also thinking about that these are more not, I think we see one incidence happen. Like we see the the event on the field or in practice when someone ruptures their ACL and think like that was the instance, but there's more and more evidence that these are actually kind of chronic injuries where it's like a micro trauma that happens over time. And then we just see sort of the final event. And so that makes things a little bit more complicated in terms of how people are loading and also certainly the quality of their tissue. What I've seen raise a lot more and I think makes a lot of sense, certainly in my experience, is that we also have less resources behind training women. I mean, certainly I'm old. I'm not that old, um, but like strength, we didn't have any strength training in high school. I was fortunate enough that I worked out. I got connected with a bunch of football players and I worked out with football players, uh, American football players like that. That was that's how I learned how to lift in high school. And I worked with them and did that through college, but like, we didn't even have, we didn't have a strength and conditioning coach. We didn't have a formal lifting program. And I think also anything that I think we're understanding more and more that women are not small men. And that seems obvious, but it's taken a long, and it's and, and I, like, don't criticize anyone. Like it's really, like I said, humans are really hard. Like it's really hard to understand these things. It's really, you know, we're just fortunate now that we're having more and more discussion around that. There's enough interest in women's sports that there's even resources to do that. I think that's an interesting thread to pull is that, you know, what is lacking in the training and the resources and the development as well for women coming up and, and how that's different from men. But there's certainly something, there is a difference between men, but I also think we forget a lot of men tear their ACLs. So we can't just make it a gender or, or a sex question. It's a lot of men tear their ACLs too. And, and so we can't just forget that and just, just focus on women, but there is something different about women that seem to put them at a higher risk. And we do have to be aware of what those factors are. I think that's a profound point on which to end this conversation. Jess, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Joe. Thank you, Jess. Great perspective. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is great. 